Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Welcome to MonarchCast. We are talking all things royal, and today we are venturing, or not venturing, we've been there. I guess we're staying on the Eastern Hemisphere, but we are venturing into the world of the Ottomans today, talking about... Finally! I know, finally! We've been saying for weeks, I think, that we're headed there, and um, I just decided this week we'd we jump in. We'll come back to Claire's surprise um, topic at a later date once she surprises me with it. <laughs> so, um, yes, that's a good segue. Oh, first of all, I'm Claire. Oh, I'm Allie. Whoops. <laughs> that's a really good point that you bring up. I think for summer, it does seem like we're sticking more to a bi-weekly yes. schedule. That's just the way summer goes. Yeah. Sorry if, if that's bothering you, but... There's so much going on. There's too many holidays. There's too much sunshine or lack of. Um, so when there is a nice day, we take advantage. So that's Claire's way of that's saying just that our- she is <laughs> in a summertime mood. <laughs> yes. I'm very busy and important. Yes. But I just wanted to say, so our schedule might be a little uneven. Yeah, we'll probably do an every other week schedule for the remainder of this set of episodes, um, which frankly is easier for the research because we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but we are venturing into topics that we have very little prior knowledge of. So um, it's a bit of a heavier lift to familiarize ourselves, um, which is fun in its own way. But we are talking about the Ottomans today. And specifically, we're going to start with not the first Ottoman ruler, but Maybe the most well-known, um, or one of the most well-known and important ones, Mehmed II. So I don't want to jump too much into his story yet. This will be a two-parter, actually. We're going to first give a little bit more background to the Ottoman landscape, what we mean when we say Ottoman, who the Ottoman Empire was or were. Is that plural? I'm not sure. Um, and you know, kind of set the scene before we really get into talking more specifically about this man. Um, But before we do any of that, Claire, you said you had a little bit of gossip to catch us up on. It's been a bit of a busy couple weeks. Yes. Well, I think this is just a busy time of year. I feel like May and June and and most of our gossip centers around the British royal family just because that's the gossip you get in America. Um, But I think May and June are pretty busy and then they all just disappear for the rest of the summer. So there's a few things going on. Um, The first thing I just wanted to bring up is um, Prince Philip had a birthday and he turned 98 years old, which is crazy. That's old. (laughs) I mean, the the man could easily live to be 100, which is really impressive given his background. And I also was just thinking about the fact, so I read an article about Philip around the time of his birthday and they were basically just talking about the fact that Philip and the Queen 
don't see each other much, but they talk on the phone every day. And this goes back to when we were talking about how he's basically just like retired, retired. Like not only has he retired from public life, I think he's retired from palace life. He does not hang out at Buckingham Palace. He wants nothing to do with any of that. I read one thing that said he can't stand the courtiers. I read another one that said if he's there, he feels like he has to work because it's more like an office than a home. All of that's probably true, but I thought it was kind of interesting that he has his own little cottage on the grounds of Sandringham, and that's where he hangs out, and he's just like, you know what? I'm 98 years old. This is what I'm going to do with my time, and I think that's pretty cool. I also saw a really mean quote somewhere that said that he looks like he died five years ago. Oh, which I thought was really mean, but he looks 98 too. So I feel like that's just something. This is a man who has had many adventures in his life. He's lived pretty hard. He's partied pretty hard. Um, you know, when we were watching The Crown and he seemed like a really complicated guy, I just thought, imagine being that kind of person and living for 98 years. It sounds exhausting, to be honest. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. So I could see why he's he's just retired to country life to now, unfortunately, be driven around by a driver. But, you know, by all accounts, he still does his chariot racing. I don't think he races anybody, but, um, you know, he's still pretty spry. So, well, it's good on you, Philip. Kind of like what we talked about with the Emperor of Japan abdicating. I mean, like, I think you get to a certain point where... Yes, you could operate on the Elizabeth philosophy of I'm in it till I die, but if you aren't of the same mindset and you've put in, you know, a half century or so on the throne, I mean, everyone deserves a day off, right? You know, in your twilight years, just relax and enjoy the final few years that you've got remaining to you without all the drama and annoyance that comes with being part of palace life. I mean, I've always wondered if Elizabeth secretly really likes it you know I mean she's good at it and like I think she thinks it's important and a calling in her own way so if you don't feel that when you're 98 years old the energy required to just get through your day must be exhaustive so but that that was it's interesting that you bring that up because that was one of the angles of one of the stories that I read was about like Elizabeth has always said this is till death she's not going to abdicate but Do you think she ever expected to live this long? I mean, she could live to be Philip's age. She could live to be her mother's age. Yes, and she looks tired. There was a lot of, um, you know, she's been out and about lately, and there was a lot of um, speculation that at Trooping the Color, which is the annual birthday celebration for her, that she looked really tired. And people were saying, you know, do you think, you know, when Philip, retired did she ever think maybe I should do that and I think right now she she's gonna continue to go on as she's going on and and the fact is is that you know you see all these investitures happening she's rarely doing those anymore it's either William or Charles she's passed off a lot of her duties so she really only has to appear in public a handful of times if she wants to She's basically um, she's, appearing for the events that are specifically honoring her. <laughs> like, yes, if, if her yes. presence is not required, she's happy to allow the next generation to take the mantle, which I actually think is a, you know, probably 
helpful to her in terms of an energy conservation, but also a great way to transition. You get the public used to seeing Charles and William carrying out these roles, and that makes those transitions seamless and the so-called authority that Charles and William are going to carry through more concrete and earned if they've been putting in the time. Yeah, and it's also interesting I read that she's not going to attend Archie's christening, which is next month. And if you recall, she did not attend Louis's christening, I believe. So I think she's done attending family christenings. Um, because it's not a family it, christening it's a public event so exactly no that's what i'm saying exhausting. i think if she doesn't need to be there she's she's kind of measuring out her public appearances rationing them if you will um anyway so i thought that was kind of interesting to talk about and then um speaking of archie on father's day um Megan or the Sussex Royal Instagram account, but let's be honest, it's Megan, um, posted a picture of Archie, but it was only half of his face. So we are getting the uh, I think she's putting out baby reveal pieces and like we each have to like put together our own collage to like see his full face. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they'll probably, you know, reveal what he fully looks like when he does his christening. Um, but, you know, I thought that was kind of funny. Um it definitely seems to be a little bit, you know, we talk about this lip a lot, but it's a little bit more of a Hollywood style rollout instead of just like a month after the birth, here's what the baby looks like. Now everybody leave us alone. You'll get another picture in a month or so. So, um, but you know, hey, people are interested. So it's drumming up interest for sure. Um, and then the only other piece of gossip that I had was today I was looking at pictures. It was the Royal Ascot, which is like a big garden party. Is that what that I is? I think it's a horse race. Is it a horse yes. race? Okay. Yes. I think there were horses. That, that, that makes sense now that you say that. Um, and there were pictures of the royal family, and I only wanted to bring it up because there's been all these stories in the press about how everyone's fighting and everybody hates each other, but there were pictures of Eugenie, Zara, Kate, William, Zara's husband. I mean, they were laughing and giggling and, like, hugging each other. I said they're either really drunk or they're talking shit about somebody <laughs> or or my personal theory was Eugenie was telling everybody that she's having a baby oh because she was grabbing her stomach in a couple pictures and let's be honest it's photo assumption so she could have just been smoothing down her dress and the picture caught that moment but everybody looked like deliriously happy they could have just been drunk that's Maybe likely, but I'm telling you, these people look. Go, do yourself a favor, get on the internet, look at these pictures. These people look really loose and giggly, and they do. But I also not, I feel know. like Ascot is like it's a big royal event. But I also feel like it's a big holiday for them. Like they all love horses. They all it's like their kind of thing. Like mannered English country money celebration. You know, like. There's probably Pim's Cups or who knows what. But, like, I don't know. It's just that they always seem like they're enjoying themselves there. It's, like, their specific brand kind of holiday, you know? No, they definitely looked like they were all having fun. So that was just a nice change of pace from, you know, I I, I, I wonder 
when I said the point where they all look like they were talking about someone and gossiping, that's the angle I'm sure the tabloids will take because the angle of everybody was so happy to see each other and hugging and giggling doesn't really take you very far, but. No, it's everybody was so happy to see each other because guess who wasn't there? Like that's. Exactly. That's what that's who they were talking about. Yeah, that's what it's going to end up. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway okay um let's talk about the ottomans yes so we're all caught up on modern gossip so let's talk about the ottomans uh and i want to be very clear i think this is obvious i think everybody knows we're not talking about furniture <laughs> so we're not gonna be we're not yeah i i actually meant to look this up and um i'm not sure i would assume that the piece of furniture the ottoman is named after a piece of furniture popularized in the ottoman empire i would assume um i might be wrong about that but it's spelled exactly the same way and makes sense to me but uh, we are talking about ottomans the people i don't think that needed to be said but you know just in case. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're so we're heading into the world of the Ottomans. Geographically, this, well, the borders fluctuate over time. As we're going to be talking about them today, geographically, we're talking about the area modern day is Turkey. So Turkey, a bit of Greece, um, a bit of Eastern Europe, like the Balkan area. That's really geographically where we're going to be centered today. So this is Central Eastern Europe um, would be the eastern edge of the former Roman Empire at this point that had been uh, overtaken and become the Byzantine Empire. So hopefully if anyone knows enough about history, that's going to center us on a map, roughly. And I'll talk a little bit more about the geography. So can I just ask a question about geography? Yes. Because it's, as we know, not my strong suit. <laughs> so you have Italy. Yes, we are east of Italy kind of today sticking in the middle of the Mediterranean where, where everything like east of Italy. Yes, um, which okay. is actually a great point to bring up because Italy is going to come into the story a bit. Um, but yes, we are talking about Eastern Mediterranean, um, Eastern Europe, East, Southeastern Europe, like Greek Peninsula and all that. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and Turkey as well. Okay, but we, I do want to mention right off the bat that we have already discussed the Ottomans before in a way. Yeah, they were really good friends of uh, Francis, if we remember. <laughs> Francis and Ferdinand and Isabella. So on Monarchast, we have talked about mostly, and this is something we've addressed that we're trying to expand beyond um, in this season of episodes, but we've mostly told the story of monarchy with a Western lens in that, you know, we've been focusing mostly on England and other European monarchies, but in that way, we've also partly told the story of the Ottomans, at least from the European angle. So remember back when we talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine going on crusade, she and her then husband were actually fighting the people who would soon fall under Ottoman dominion. She's a couple hundred years before the Ottoman rise. But these are the same peoples. And Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain, when they had to contend with this quote, infidel threat on their Eastern borders, the Ottomans, as we talked about, were that threat. So this isn't the first time they're coming up. Um, and I wanted to point that out again because the scale of Ottoman influence when they did rise to power is pretty hard, I think, to overestimate. They had a relatively short rule in world history, like if we're looking at the entirety of world history and maybe 
especially as we compare them to the Japanese monarchy that we've been talking about. It's not as long, but it's oh, also... Well, they win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but it's also not a short history. And the important thing is that it was geographically expansive and they touched on a lot of changes in world history. And so we haven't been focused on them specifically in their own right, but we've already seen their effect and the ripples that they sent out into the world, which I, I just want to call out because I... I think it really speaks to the influence that they had. And what's interesting about this, this is one of these empires that we're talking about that exist at the same time as America. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I'm glad you say that because I also want to point out that when we talk about the Ottoman Empire, it ended pretty recently in the scale of history. So it only officially collapsed with the end of World War I and the rise of Ataturk. So we're talking about 1920, roughly. Um, so if we go back, you know, 100 years, the Ottoman Empire was still not in its prime by any means. Um, I think they called it the old sick man of, was it the sick man of Europe? I don't know. Maybe that's not the Ottoman Empire. Was that the Austrian? We're, this is already prime royal oops territory, but <laughs> at the time... Let's of, just say it's around the time that Prince Philip was born. That is a great thing to point out because Greece was, you know, in the time we're going to be talking about, part of the Ottoman Empire. So um, it's all connected in many ways. Um, but before the decline, the Ottoman Empire did reign for four centuries across Eastern, Southern Europe, and even into Asia and Africa. So like I said, covering a pretty large swath of the globe and doing so up until fairly recent history. That means that when we talk about the Ottomans, narrowing down how we want to talk about them is pretty difficult. Um, Like I said, they don't have quite the long history that the Japanese chrysanthemum throne has, but we do have a pretty full list of rulers that we could choose from. You know, Ottomans, at least from my brief um, foray into research, didn't seem to rule for specifically long periods of time. Like you didn't have any hundred year reigns or anything or anything close to what we might see in modern times. There was a lot of political upheaval going on. So there's a lot of rulers that we could talk about. And it might make sense on one hand to start with the first of the Ottomans, um, whose name he was Osman I, who lent the empire his name, and he was the first leader of these tribal armies that coalesced and came to be known as the Ottomans. But I don't necessarily know if he's the natural place to start because he didn't rule over the empire as history came to know it. So I want to start with this man who ruled the empire as like the empire with a capital E, And really kicked off this reign that when we think about the Ottoman Empire, we think about this man. And that was Mehmet II. Mehmet? It's, I've seen alternate spellings. It's either Mehmet or Mehmed. So it could be a T or D, depending on your source. Pretty much every source that I've read has like an entire chapter dedicated to spellings and like pronunciations. So I'm going to try to do the best I can. (laughs) Um, we'll we are one. dealing, it's yeah, we it. are dealing with yeah. Turkish and I am not up on my Turkish. So <laughs> yeah, um, we're going to go with, I think we'll stick with Mehmed with the D. So, okay, yeah. Um, but first, before we get into talking about Mehmed, I really want to set the scene because as they've been hopefully conveying, it's quite the scene that we're talking about. We've got 
a full history before we even really get into the Ottomans officially. And I think that's an interesting angle to start with because at least personally in my experience, when you're studying history from this Western perspective, it's pretty easy to get a picture of Ottoman conquest that depicts this sudden arrival of Islamic armies outside Byzantium and this dramatic fall of a Christian empire. And then they rename Constantinople to Istanbul, like basically overnight. I mean, my impression from ninth grade history was like, la la la, we're studying Byzantium. And then, oh my God, there's ships on the horizon and the Turks took over, right? Like (laughs) it can sound pretty dramatic and sudden. And I think that's because one, history loves drama, right? Um, And I think that Western history especially has a tendency to be apologetic about falling to, quote, outsiders, as if we have to, you know, say, oh, we didn't see this coming. You know, it's this idea of Western exceptionalism that I think tends to give a bias. Um, And also, I think a sudden dramatic invasion and conquest makes for a great television, so to speak, right? So if you're trying to tell this story of world history, it sounds way more interesting to say, oh, the Ottoman ships appeared on the horizon and they battered the city and it fell. Um, Of course, reality is not that simple. History doesn't happen that quickly in real time. Um, And the Ottomans didn't so much knock down this thriving empire as much as they really just achieved this long-held dream that they had by slowly, slowly chipping away at this creaking, failing, and barely held together alliance of Christian rulers. Which, as we've talked about, was very unstable. I mean, just in the episode alone where we did about Francis, it's and I know it's not exactly the time we're talking about here, but it was like one year he's allied with the Pope. The next year, he's allied with England. The next year, he's he. they all hate him. And it's like every alliance was so unstable in the quote-unquote Christianity kingdoms. Christendom, if you ripe, will. Yes. Christendom. Was, thank you. Yes, Christendom, there's a name for that. For. <laughs> they, were, they were ripe for the picking. Yes, and they had their own internal strifes that the Ottomans, as we'll talk about, were very good at exploiting and, you know, Like I said, Byzantium wasn't this thriving empire that suddenly fell overnight. It was in decline. And there were a lot of internal struggles. And also, you know, the fringes of the empire were slowly receding. So the Ottomans were really good at taking advantage of all this. And they just really hammered them in strategic ways until, you know, they finally got to the gates of Constantinople and knocked them down. Quite literally, actually, as we'll talk about. Um... And really, I think the important thing for me, at least in my understanding of this, is the Ottomans really, really benefited from being in the right place at the right time, both historically and geographically. The Ottoman principality coalesced at this time when Byzantium and other nearby empires were not as strong as they once had been. Their power wasn't maybe as centralized as it could have been. And also they were located right in between all of these. So They were located on the eastern borders of Byzantium, so modern-day Turkey, in what was then known as Western Anatolia. So Anatolia would be the central plains of Turkey, if we look at it today. Um, So the Ottomans were staking a claim in this area, because historically Anatolia was pretty hot property. If you think about it geographically, it sits right on the Black Sea, it sits on the Mediterranean, there's rivers, I mean, it's right in this fertile area. I mean, I don't know if the lands themselves 
in Anatolia are very fertile, but they're at a crossroads of all these other civilizations. But people really seem to want to settle it. The Mongols invaded starting in the 1220s, and in 1243, the Seljuk Sultanate became a vassal state of the Ilkhanids uh, Empire, which I believe the Seljuks were the people that were in Anatolia pre-Mongol invasion. And the Mongols moved west, essentially, from Mongolia, uh, across Asia, into this Ilkhanid Empire, and then took over the Seljuk Sultanate, which became then a vassal state of the Ilkhanid Empire, which would be modern-day Iran. Um, that's a long, that's a long way to go. Yes, uh, but I mean, you know, when we talk well, about the, the Mongols, were right. I mean, you some... want to talk about another empire that covered a wide swath of geography. The Mongolian, the Mongols were, you know, pretty good at that as well. I mean, the ways that this ties into the Mongols and, you know, I think if we want to talk about the Mongols, probably Attila the Hun is the one everybody's most say, familiar is that, with. Is that Attila the Hun? Because I don't I, know if he's the one I, invading in 1220, but those would be the Mongols, yes. And so what happens is as this, this invasion moves westward, um, you have this group of nomadic tribes, these Turkish nomadic tribes that had originally come from Central Asia who migrate westward as these invasions happen. And they end up settling in the frontier lands between the Mongols and the Byzantines, along with other Muslims who were seeking refuge from the Mongol Empire. The, you know, the Mongol leaders were pretty cruel. They weren't necessarily religiously tolerant. And all of this invasion that's happening is also coinciding with the rise of Islam in the world. So a lot of these people that they've overtaken, the Seljuks in particular, are Islamic, and so as the Mongols come in, you have a lot of people fleeing rather than live under Mongol control, and they're settling in this kind of in-between area between empires that are technically under the control of one or the other, but they're borderlands, so they're maybe not as closely monitored as the center of the empire would be, and so you can kind of get away with a little bit more freedom. And also, you can... (laughs) kind of band together and take what you want. Eventually, this these nomadic tribes set their sights on the rich lands on the Byzantine side of the border, um, and they decided to launch a holy war against the empire. This was a pretty common thing for um, Muslims at the time. You know, one of their religious tenets was this idea of Gaza or holy war. So they, they launched this holy war, and these raids on the Byzantine territory become ever more and more frequent. And Eventually, by 1320, the leaders of this holy war have organized the Turkish nomads into a handful of independent principalities in western Anatolia on these lands that they've slowly kind of shaved off from the Byzantine Empire, who are at the time distracted by going on elsewhere on the Balkan border, so on their northern border. Um, So they're kind of taking advantage of, you know, the Byzantines aren't really paying attention, they've got bigger problems, and we're just going to slowly take over their west, their eastern frontier, in the name of Allah, which I think we've heard that before. <laughs> so, um, in a way, well, yes, this, um, is a, this is a tradition that goes back a very long time. <laughs> yes, 
And, it, you know, through this holy war, this Ottoman principality is established, um, and, and it really makes its name in 1302 when Osman, who um, is this man who holds territory, territory furthest to the north and the closest to Byzantium and the Balkans, defeats a Byzantine imperial army of 2,000 men and cements his status among the principalities of like, hey, look at this guy. He beat the, the empire, you know, and he gets all this land and all this power because of it. Um, and, and I really want to talk about a little bit this idea of the holy war, because I think especially today, given modern politics, we have this idea of holy war in Islam and it, you know, it, it's sort of come to be synonymous, it has a bad connotation and it's come to be synonymous with uh, jihad and terrorism and all of that. But for these people at the time, it was really tied to this foundation of their religious duty to expand the realms of Islam until they covered the entire world. And I really want to call attention to this idea because we this is not the first time we've approached this type of idea. I mean, I mentioned before the crusading of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the war against the infidel of the Spanish rulers. It's the exact same thing that the Ottomans are doing, just in the name of a different religion. So, right. to and them, before that it was the Greeks and the Romans absolutely doing it in the name of their emperor. Absolutely, I mean, I mean to you know. To the Spanish rulers, these infidel invaders that they have to keep out, I mean, to the Ottomans, the infidels are the Catholics and the crusaders. Like crusade, instead of going on crusade, crusade means people coming to try and take your lands from you in the name of their God. So this idea actually reminded me a lot of when we talked about Isabel and Ferdinand and their mission and the Inquisition and all of these this done in the name of religion and how Isabella especially tied her you know, her religion to her throne in a way that was sort of inextricable. And the Ottomans are doing the exact same thing, just different from a different angle. So I wanted to bring that up because, yeah, exactly. I want to bring it up because I do think it's important to have a little empathy for the other side of things, especially when we talk about, oh no, holy war. I mean, holy war and crusade are the same thing. (laughs) So yeah. No, it's yeah. it's human conquest, oldest time. In the name of religion, yes. Um, yeah. And interestingly, you know, unlike, say, the Inquisition, where not being um, Catholic, if you were sort of swept up in this, it most likely meant death or exile, holy war in this case was not intended to destroy, but rather to subdue, um, which I think it helps explain how the Ottomans managed to gain such power. You know, they, they tended to unite... Um, Muslims and Christians, you know, they had these Muslim lands in Anatolia and slowly over time, Christian lands in the Balkans. Um, You know, non-Muslims, of course, are second-class citizens, but they were allowed to live, at least during the early years of the empire. And were they allowed to practice their own religion? They were, to, you know, as long as they met other criteria. But it's not an extermination or, you know, like a full full bore just like invasion it's you know a colonization and an incorporation and it's really how they grew their lands and how they also took the influence of these prior empires and sultanates and informed these policies for government and society so Hmm. i'm not saying no one ever died who wasn't muslim if you resisted you were more likely to be killed but they did have some rules in place for tolerance Probably wasn't a perfect life, but, you know, better than death, I suppose. Um, It's not the Inquisition. Exactly, yeah. Um, So the Ottomans are slowly building up. You know, Osman has 
built this reputation. He's cemented the Ottoman principality as the principality to watch out for. But, you know, he dies. He's followed by successors. And by the time we get to Suleiman I, um, he's really taking advantage of this geographical asset that I talked about, of where the Ottoman principality is located, to make inroads into Europe. So they've pretty much conquered all the land that they're going to conquer for the moment in Anatolia. Now they've got their eyes on Europe. Europe is the prize. Um, and Suleiman's father, Orhan, had married, actually, the daughter of a claimant to the Byzantine throne. And so they used this family connection to insert themselves in Byzantine domestic affairs by joining a war against Thrace in 1352. And I believe Thrace is Greece, I want to say. Greece it's, adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Suleiman took advantage of this war and a well-timed earthquake, actually, <laughs> to take possession of some key fortresses at Gallipoli, and then he refused to leave. So I really think this is a, a really fascinating point because this goes back to this idea that I got from studying history in, in high school, you know, that the, the Ottomans just kind of came out of nowhere. But here they are actually marrying into Byzantine royalty and then using that to kind of worm their way in. And then, you know, like, oh, we'll help you with your war, but we're just going to go take this fortress over here. And um, no, actually, I think I'll stay. <laughs> so It's just really clever. And Predictably, the Western Christian world like freaked the F out. Like everybody suddenly was like, whoa, whoa, who are you? What are you doing? What do you mean you're taking over this land? So there are plans for a crusade. This time, unlike previous crusades, um, the plan wasn't to capture Jerusalem, but actually to rescue Constantinople. Um, and then there was this plan that had kind of been floating around, but was renewed with haste to try and reunite the Latin and Greek Christian factions of the churches. So the schisms in the um, Catholic Church had already occurred at this time. So you've got your Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox arms of the church, and then your Latin or Roman Catholic arms of the church. So they're not getting along, but they're like, hey, maybe we should, uh, you know, resume talks so that we could, you know, address this Muslim threat that's coming to us. Because clearly the Ottomans are looming as a threat and everyone at this point has become very aware of the intended target, which is Constantinople. Um, I think taking the fortresses at Gallipoli were a very clear signal. There's only one place in the vicinity that you're going to have your sights set on and that's Constantinople. Um, but fortunately, I guess for Constantinople, it still had about a hundred years to go until it was going to fall. But the events are starting to be set in motion. Um, like I said, it's the chipping away. So the, the chisel has come out. In <laughs> and the Ottomans, they don't stop. So by 1361, they've conquered Thrace. Um, and as their forces move into new lands, they have this policy where they reinforce their presence by resettling residents of existing territories in the newly conquered territories. So People are encouraged, although sometimes forcefully encouraged, to settle in these newly conquered areas, and then thereby they cement the Ottoman status of rule. I mean, isn't that colonization 101? You put up a physical presence and it's kind of hard to leave um, or harder for others to make you leave. Um, so the Balkans follow this as the Ottomans slowly work their way north. They're taking advantage of political fragmentation in the Balkans and anarchy. The Balkans at this point are a collection of various 
kingdoms and principalities and all kind of loosely allied with each other. Um, and of course, now the Ottomans also have at their disposal an army that is now swollen with prisoners of war. So the Ottomans very famously had this core of the military known as the Janissaries, where if you were a male who was living in a land that was conquered by the Ottomans, you were most likely going to find yourself conscripted into military service. Um, oh, and that's like not the good kind. That's like the kind of warfare where you're losing limbs and... yes. Dying of dysentery. It's not like we're conscripting you into service and you're going to get a GI bill and like, you know, a pension. It's you're you're going to probably be um, forced on the front lines of the infantry and killed. And if not, probably, you know, not living a very happy life. I mean, some people, I think, actually assimilated and rose in the ranks and you had a lot of military leaders and government officials who actually started out as slaves in the empire. So there were a lot of different paths that you could take, but they did have this custom of conscripting their prisoners into their military. Um, and like I said before, they also took advantage very cleverly of this split in Christianity. So while they're moving into these Balkan areas, the Roman Catholic, or as I guess at the time, maybe Latin Christians, are looking to Western Christendom for help, while the Greek Orthodox populations are actually operating more on a, you know, we'd really like anyone but the Italians kind of mentality. So they often willingly succumb to Ottoman rule. Like they were like, oh, you're not Christian, but you're not the Italians. So we're cool with this. And so, which I find hilarious because like they really saw themselves as different religions and obviously didn't look at the Roman Catholics as true Christians. So they didn't, they were like, well, we may as well be overtaken by the Ottomans. Um, and the Pope did declare a crusade with a bull in 1366, but no Christian armies were really ever sent to meet the Ottomans, so it amounted to basically nothing. Even as they're threatening all these lands around the Byzantine Empire and Byzantium itself, the Ottomans are still meddling in Byzantine politics. So by this point in the late 14th century, um, Murad I is helping to secure the throne for Andronicus IV in 1376. Andronicus IV is a Byzantine emperor, and he's using an Ottoman ruler to help him gain his throne. So the the Byzantines are like, at, on the one hand, they're like, it's a threat on our borders. We've got to take them seriously. On the other, they're happy to exploit them in their own way to continue their, their rule. And maybe that speaks to how the Ottomans were able to eventually conquer them is this speaks to internal corruption and a lack of clear rule, if I were to guess. Um, and, you know, as for the regular people, it's quite possible they preferred Ottomans to rule anyway. Um, the Ottomans brought this centralized administration where before there had been decentralized feudalism, where common people were at the whim of their feudal lords. So it could be that, you know, they looked at the Ottomans and thought, hmm, that seems like a level up. I think I'll just let these people come in and tell me what what I am now. And also the Ottomans officially recognized the Orthodox Church. So effectively suppressing the Catholicism in their realms by recognizing the validity of a rival branch of the church. Um, so they're weaponizing this split within Christianity in, a, in yet another way. Um, but I, I think it's important to, to mention this idea. You know, I keep using this analogy of like, chipping away. But also there's this ebb and flow to the Ottoman 
rise. So Ottoman rule is not absolute overnight. There were some setbacks. Murad I was assassinated. But then, you know, the other rulers after him, they continue this on. So Ottoman rule is firmly established in the Balkans by Bayezid in 1394. Um, and he actually is the first one to attempt to capture Constantinople in 1398, but all he did was succeed in blockading it temporarily. Um, and so his attempts at empire failed. He is actually defeated by Timur in 1402, um, who is also known as Tamerlane. So I believe he's one of the Mongols um, who are back on the upswing. And so in 1402, after this defeat, the Ottoman state is kind of at risk of falling apart. But Bayezid isn't the last to try this conquering of Constantinople, and he's not the last Ottoman with a bigger empire, empirical, how we say, <laughs> ambitions. So there's going to be another wave of his descendants trying to make this happen. And they're almost there. So we're at 1402, and the big date for the Ottomans is 1453. So we've got 50 years now and the Ottomans are really making moves. So, um, and this is when we, we move into our man of the hour, Mehmed II. So, um, oh, Mehmed, here we yeah, are. Yeah, we're, we're there. So, um, or almost there, I guess. So after 1402 and this defeat by Timur, you know, like I said, the Ottomans are, are a little bit at loose ends. They're, they could kind of go either way. They're, they could entirely disintegrate or they could just regroup and try to continue their ambitions, which is what they do. So, and they do it fairly quickly. So they return to strength by 1415. Um, and in 1453, like I said, they changed the world with the capture of Constantinople. Um, but between 1402 and 1415, like how do they regain this strength so that they can then go after Constantinople? Well, it continues this pattern of this ebb and flow. So after... Um, the death of Bayezid, there's this internal strife among Ottoman princes um, that gets, you know, it's power succession issues, you know, everybody's fighting for the crown, and it's encouraged by the Balkan and Byzantine leaders who are looking at this picture and saying, okay, I can, I can work with this. So they're often supporting the weakest of the Ottoman princes, I think, operating on this idea that the enemy of my biggest enemy <laughs> is my friend. So they're going to aid the ones who seem like they have the least shot of overtaking power, or if they gain power, then they'll have, you know, control over them. In 1411, the Byzantines make an alliance with Bayezid's son, Mehmed, which turns out to be a fatal mistake for them because Mehmed uses their help to reestablish Ottoman control of Anatolian principalities that they had lost over the years. And he really emerges as this existential threat to Byzantine, like the Byzantine Empire itself. So he signs a peace treaty in 1416 with the Byzantines and then pursues a policy of conciliation in the Balkans. Um, and then they make another treaty promising not to attack Byzantium in 1423, but then they adopt a more aggressive policy towards the Balkans in 1430. So they're really playing every side. You know, Constantinople is still the prize, but the Balkans are another area of interest, and they're really just kind of going after them however they can. Like, okay, today we're going to have a peace treaty. Tomorrow, maybe this won't matter. We'll just, you know continue our advance. Um, and by the time Mehmed II really came to power, because he actually came to power twice, 
Um, but by the time he came to power for real, the empire was now strong enough to entertain these dreams of conquest. They've built up their navy, they've built up their military te- te- technologies, and Mehmed has this goal. He's going to revive Bayezid's empire, and then he's going to take it even further, and he's going to be the one to finally conquer Constantinople. And he really wants to do this because the symbolic victory that he would gain from conquering Constantinople, it's the heart of the Byzantine Empire, it's the storied city, it's supposedly impregnable. This victory would give him this necessary prestige and authority that then he could then leverage for further empire building and just take over the world. Um, which And wait, so it is Constantinople at this time? Yes, Constantinople is the capital of the Byzantine Empire. Um, it is not yet Istanbul, but Mehmed does achieve this, and we will talk about how he does this and when and all of that next time, because we have now hopefully successfully set the stage for the real rise of the Ottomans. And it's going to be Istanbul and not Constantinople. Istanbul, not Constantinople, Constantinople. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I really glazed over quite a bit between 1400 and 1453 when Mehmed's ready to take on the Ottomans, but it's just a lot of battles and wars and back and forth over who has the power. But the the main thrust of it, I think, is that the Ottomans are really good at exploiting the weaknesses of the Byzantines. And they're ready. They're poised. They're right on the cusp. They're right on the edges of that empire, and they're circling around, and they're ready to take over. So next time. So what do you think, Claire? Did you learn something today? <laughs> I learned a lot, actually. Um, I didn't know any of that prior to this. I think it's really funny. You were talking about, um, you know, thinking about it from the other side. And I was just thinking about the fact that even in school, you learn about the Ottomans. They're always the bad guy. Yeah. And, um, you know... They had they kind of had their own thing going on. Um, they're so, I don't you know, know I just, they I, are kind yeah. of the bad guy, but they're they're not. They're, they're the not same really. bad guy as everybody else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like you say, like um, what what was I watching? Well, I guess it's kind of like Game of Thrones. Like the whole idea of Game of Thrones is like just because you're the hero in your own story doesn't mean you're not the villain in somebody else's. Right. And I'm so Um, glad you mentioned Game of Thrones because when we talk about the capture of Constantinople, I think whoever wrote the Battle of King's Landing was taking notes (laughs) because I was like, oh. They have a dragon? They did not have a dragon, but the the way that they ended up capturing the city seemed very familiar to me. I was like, all that was missing was a dragon, basically. Interesting. Yeah. No, but I I know that we don't usually focus more on the, you know, we try to talk about specific rulers and I'm sort of hinting at this man that we're going to talk about. But like I said, I, I really felt like there were a full 200 years of history to explore before we get to the main events of this story. And I think they're very important to the story. So I really wanted to spend some time on them. Um, I just like, while I was reading this, like I knew a little bit about the Ottomans, you know, I studied the Middle East in school. And so you just pick up, you know, a bit of the history, but it's all more modern, recent, like 
you know, the decline of the Ottomans and the frac- and the ways the fracturing of the Ottoman Empire informs like today's geopolitical landscape. So I can talk about all of that, but you know, I never really realized the timing of this where they're nestled right in between the Byzantines and these former Iranian empires and the Mongols and, you know, the Golden Horde in Eastern Europe and everything that's happening. It's like, they just really, I don't know that you can really stress enough how perfectly poised they were, you know, in history and also just like right place, right time, you know? Yeah, it's definitely interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, So next time we will get a little bit more into Mehmed II um, and his rule like I said, he did actually rule twice, which is a little bit interesting. Um, once as a young boy and once when he was a little bit older. Um, and he did become this colossal figure in Ottoman history by this achievement of, spoiler alert, capturing Constantinople. I think I've said it enough times that I shouldn't have to spoil alert that. <laughs> no, but 1453 is one of those big years in history, you know, that they kind of talk about. So um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the man behind it. Well, next time. Until then. Until then. All right. All right. Bye. MonarchCast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.